All right, well, hey, well, before we get started, got some things to share, but I, but I think what I'm sharing kind of bleeds in to uh, a little bit of what the introduction to our message is this morning and that kind of thing. And so I want to start with kind of the, the foundation or the fundamentals, maybe is a better word, uh, for what Redemption Church is all about, who we are, what makes us up, what our goals are, that kind of thing. Now, if you have been here for even but a little while, uh, just even in the last month or month and a half, we had a message on a Sunday where I had a backpack and, and we were talking about some of our distinctives as a church. And as a church, what we want to always keep before us is that we as a people, the church is people, right? The church isn't a building, the church isn't a program, uh, the church isn't something on paper. The church is individuals globbed together in the name of Jesus, that is the church, and so as a church, we are a group of imperfect people. Hang out with me for an afternoon and you will know how imperfect I am. Hang out with me on the 405, no question. All right, you will learn. I am an imperfect person with lots of bad habits and bad traits. And, you know, I have my issues, as we all do. But the good news about the church and about the good news of Jesus is that while we are imperfect people, we have been redeemed by a perfect God. Right? We've been bought, purchased, shaped, we're being changed, we're being groomed, we're growing into Christ's likeness. And so, as a church, we wanted to identify that the kind of church we are is acknowledging we're in process, but God is perfect and complete. And he's going to grow us in that. And because we're redeemed by a perfect God, for us it's very simple. Everything we do is all about Jesus. Right? It's all about Jesus. We want to praise Jesus, know Jesus, learn of Jesus, be like Jesus, follow Jesus, hunger for Jesus, thirst for Jesus. We want to share Jesus with others. We are just like, woohoo, Jesus, right? That's us. We love Jesus. But I think every church that is a truly biblically oriented, gospel centered church is going to say they love Jesus. But what then we have to do as churches is figure out well, what's our flavor? What's our focus? What, what is it we're really trying to accomplish? What are our core values? And so when redemption was born, we worked through this. We're like, well, what about this? What about that? How do we want to be defined as a church? And what we came to is this threefold priority, which is for the glory of God, by the grace of God, for the good of our city, right? These three traits were critical. It's like everything we do is like a trident. We have these three points of focus that we want to be committed to, we want to live for, die for. Uh, we don't want to baggage a bunch of stuff on the camel here. We want to make sure that we stay light, fast with our priorities. And so we said, we know that this is what matters to us. The glory of God is worship. The grace of God is actually theology and truth. Right? Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and to live soberly, righteously, and godly, as it says in Titus chapter 2. So grace is about God-centeredness and how that transforms. And then for the good of the city means we're missional. We care about what it means to really reach the lost world where it's at. We don't want to simply be a church that says, hey, we're over here, come see us. We're going to do some of that. But we also want to be a church that says, and we're going to where you are, we're going to meet you where you're at, we're going to love you in your circumstance, because that is the heart and essence of Jesus, and it's all about Jesus anyway. So we make that the big idea. So then as a church, when we sat down, we said, all right, so how, does these, how do these three priorities break down? We said, all right, we care about who God seeks, we care about what God says or how God speaks. And we care about why God makes. And so we care about worship, 
We care about doctrine or truth or belief. We care about evangelism or outreach. We care about those three things. And so then as a church, we did something a lot of churches don't typically do when you nail your values. Uh, We said, well, we want to put a pastor over each of those values. We want to guard the gate of our values with actually putting pastors. So a lot of churches, you have a senior pastor, an associate pastor, executive pastor, children's, men's, women's, youth, the list goes on and on and on. And we said, you know, that's good. We're not against that. But we felt led to do something different. So we said, if we care about outreach and mission, we should have a pastor. That's his job. If we care about the Bible and what Jesus says in the Bible, we should have a pastor that focuses on that. If we care about worship, we should have a pastor that focuses on that. On that. So we just said, man, that's the big idea. Jesus is the senior pastor of Redemption Church. And then there's these three core values with three core pastors that are attached to those values. So I fulfill one of those. Pastor Scott fulfills one of those. But currently, we have a vacancy, right? And that is for the pastor that pertains to worship, creativity, and the arts, right? And and so we're finally, after a couple of months, really beginning to ramp up that process and say, all right, what is it exactly God is leading us to in this? Who is the man to take us to this place in worship? And I want you to understand that the chief end of the church, the chief end of my life, the chief end of all of our lives, you ready? Worship. It's worship. God made us to worship Him. God saved us so that we might fall to our knees like all of those stories in the Gospels and say, Jesus, you're the one. Jesus, you're the way. Jesus, thank you for healing. Jesus, thank you for saving. Jesus, thank you for intervening. That is to be the heartbeat of the church's worship. So this position is no small thing. It is monster. It is the pinnacle of what we do. And so there's a lot of weight in that. You know what I mean? It's like, man, you want to make sure that you find God's person. What does that look like? And how do we go about it and everything else? And so we've been talking as elders and praying and working through things. And and we're like, man, there's all sorts of variations and options and possibilities. Uh, We've kind of shrunk it down to seven possibilities. We can bring up that next slide right there. We've got options, (laughs) right? So we figure it's probably one of these seven types of worship leaders. Now, my daughter Emma said she wants the wisdom of Yoda, she wants the, uh, the, the grittiness of a cowboy, but she likes to do the guitar. I'm like, of course, because you're a teenage girl. All right so, um, all right, so she's got her variations. We all have our variations. Here's what we don't know. We don't know who this person is. Uh, we don't know who they are yet, which is why we're inviting you to pray with us as we really get this process underway through November and December, we are going high octane on this, right? We're already putting together what we think we're looking for, what that looks like on paper, how that plays with Redemption Church. I mean, all of that is in play. And what we know we're looking for is first and foremost a person that loves, that exudes, that just drives home the ideas that, 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 that they love Jesus and his Bible, that they just love Jesus and his Bible. They love that. The next thing that really matters to us is that this person, they are clearly, obviously passionate about what it means to worship God. Not because it's hip and cool and it's emotive, but because they want to go and experience God. And what they're saying the whole time is, come with me, let's go find out what it means to really sense the presence of God. That's the kind of heart we're looking for. We're looking for somebody that loves creativity. 
that looks at Genesis 1 and says, as God created, He created creators. Right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God says, I've created you so that you could go create in my image and glory. So we want somebody that wants to do that. We want somebody that loves to rally people, loves to empower them, loves to identify them, loves to deploy them. And so we're putting this on paper and we're talking it out. But you know what? We also know that we don't have all of the skills to, to really handle all of this process. We know less than half of everything is in eldership, believe it or not. All right? And sometimes a task like this is a little daunting because you're like, man, how do, how do we move forward and how do you start to sort through all of the resumes? We've already had people email us, send us resumes, contact us, and we haven't even put it out there. Right? There's people saying, hey, we want to come and serve at Redemption. We're like, that is awesome. Who are you? Um, you know, so, so we've we got to work through a little bit of a process. And so to do this, and, and we think to do it in a very effective way, we've decided to do something that, uh, again, just we felt very led to, we're very excited about. We're actually going to work with an outside group that's going to help us in this process called the Slingshot Group. So they, they're going to be a part of helping us sort through just literally the, the potential for a lot of candidates, a lot of interests. They're going to coach us through the process so that we keep before us, this is what we feel God is leading us to. And with that, these are some of the people that might be the best option for that. And so this process is already underway. We've already interacted with them in the last couple of weeks. Uh, there's other parts. They're meeting with our elders tomorrow. They're going to be actually coming to redemption and checking us out and telling us, hey, man, here's who you are. Here's what you're doing. Here's some cool stuff. Here's some things maybe you want to think about. Uh, it's going to be great. They're going to meet with some of our worship team people this week. I mean, there's just a lot of things happening with this, so it's ramping up. So I want you to understand, not only is it ramping up, not only are we excited about it, but we're asking you to pray massively because this is going to move quick. At least it has the potential to move very fast. You know, before we thought it's going to be about six months before we make the transition, we think it's going to come sooner by God's grace. And so be praying for us. Be praying for the next person. Be praying for us as a church to identify who that person might be. Now, why are we doing this? Are we looking for a pastor over our worship arts to be cool or to be marketable? Because that's what everybody does, because it's a great sales pitch. Because again, if you, you, know, you have this, this consumer kind of spirit, it's going to magnify your base. No, for us, it's, it's, it's far more biblically oriented than that. It's what I was saying. Um, the, the church is a very special thing in the world. See, the church is not merely a nonprofit. And the church is not simply a community organization. All right? The church is much more profound than that. In fact, what I want you to know is that the local church, Redemption Church, or Adventure Church, or any local church that honors Jesus and honors his Bible, that church, you ready? It is the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world. Some of us don't even believe that. We go, no, 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 the hope of the world rests in other things, people and other places making right decisions that shape our culture. And the answer to that is simply, that's not true. The church has the one thing that can change everything, the one message that can redeem lives, the one truth that can bring restoration. That's it. 
So it's no small thing what the church engages in. And that means that we as a church, we must understand our mission, which is to reach the lost. Our belief, which is the word of God. We need to understand our purpose, which is our worship. And then from that we go, that is why we want to be so dedicated and so clear on the next pastor coming in. Because again, he holds one of the most cherished values, if not the most cherished value of the entire Bible. The worship of God. And we want to make sure that as a church, our focus is truly Jesus. See, if we look around at our world, it's not hard. Just pick any news site. Turn on any channel. And we look around at American culture, and we know. We know it's in jeopardy. We know there's problems. We see the hurt. We see the pain. We see the poor decisions. Even in my own lifetime, I feel like I'm getting to be one of those older guys saying, in my day, right? Like, but honestly, I go, in my day, it was very different than today. Very different. And so the church needs to be true and pure and invested and unabashed about its truth. It needs to say, I want to change the world and not just hide out from the world. I want to invest in the world and not just critique and criticize and, and say the world's going to hell, but to say, how do we change the trajectory of our culture? We do that by being the church. By truly being this intrusive, yet gracious, loving, tender, but proclamational body. Where we say, I want to die to myself for Jesus. I want to let go of all of this world, because I know there's a world coming that's far greater. I, I want to contend, I want to contend for, for this book. Because it's not just a book, it's truth. And it's not just truth, it's the word. And it's not just the word, the truth and the word is Jesus. And so we want to contend for that. We want to contend for what it means to be truly worshipful. All right? Because understand our legacy, our legacy, our significance is not founded in our philanthropy. It's not founded in our democracy. It's not founded in all these earthly things that we can leave behind. That is not really what's going to make the big difference. We don't leave a mark based on those things, not with any real longevity. See, our mark is left when we uphold Scripture, when we uphold worship, when we, when we uphold mission, when it's faith, hope, and love. That's it. And if we leave everything else to the world, we leave everything we ever do to the world, but we don't leave them Jesus, we left them nothing. We left them nothing. Right? At best, you might buy the world time, but you did not deposit hope. So we need to leave them Jesus. It needs to be all about Jesus. We need to fight for what it means to care about the things that Jesus cares about above all else. That's the investment that we want to make, right? That's the change we want to bring. And so what we realize as a church, as a Redemption Church, is that we have some goals to set. We have some habits to change. We have some vices to break. We have some priorities to consider. We have some passions to ignite. We have things to do. We've got to roll up our sleeves. And so when we talk about hiring a new pastor, please don't think we're just hiring another music guy who hopefully puts together a good enough production that the consumer-driven culture says, ah, that was quality. 
that was almost not even Christian it was so good, right? Like, right? I mean, like, that's our target, you know? Like, that's the target. Wow, that was almost professional. Um, it's not the goal. See, the goal, and hopefully seeing this new pastor come, is that he will show us what it means to go to the mountaintop. He will show us what it means to be so enamored with our God, this world grows dim in comparison, right? That he will show us the living and true God in such a way where we say, I want more of him and less of this. I want to be captivated here, not captivated here. Right? That's why worship matters. We don't just want a guy, we want a general who takes us into battle because we as a church are filled with, with warriors. Warriors, not like this world makes warriors. Warriors of a different kind. Warriors where the greatest is the least, the first is the last. Warriors that lay their lives down so that others might have life. Through the good news, life, love of Jesus. That is why we're doing what we're doing. And that takes us to our text this morning. And first, or in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. So, if you have a Bible, please... Open up to chapter 3, verse 1 of 2 Timothy as we look at our series, Warrior, the Warrior Endures. Endures. Because I guarantee you, Redemption, we must endure. We must strive. We must fight. We must own. We must conquer. We storm hell's gates and Satan loads his diapers. All right? That's what we do. Right? Honestly, that is the mission. That is what Jesus said of the church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Right? We cowboy up for a reason. We're told we win. We need to think in terms of the win. Right? See, as Paul writes to Timothy in the church in Ephesus, it's a church that Paul planted in great adversity, great challenge, a riot breaks out, but a church is formed, and it's grown for a number of years. And it's learning certain good habits, it's ditching certain bad habits, it's trying to figure all this out. But over the course of time, like any church, if you don't stay on top of things, erosion can set in. And that's what Paul is going to be warning Timothy about in this text. And I think it's very valuable for us, because after that whole thing I just went through on, we conquer, we take, we go, we fight, we wage war, we reach the loss, we want to be pure, we want to be engaged, we got to realize that there's going to be a temptation for us in the church to face some erosion if we're not aware. In fact, it was kind of interesting. I was looking at the text this week. I'm like, okay, I'm coming back from Hawaii. I've been gone for a couple of weeks. Man, I want to do something lighthearted and fun. And then I looked at this text. I'm like, next week. All right, so, <laughs> next week. But you know what? I'll tell you, this is better. This is better because what this text is going to do is to, uh, man, get our spidey senses going. Make us self-aware of our lives, self-aware of what can derail us at times. And so that's what Paul is going to do. He's going to give some warning that is valuable for us just as much as it was valuable in Timothy's day. Now he starts in verse 1 by this simple little phrase of, but understand this. Right? What he's saying is, hear ye, hear ye, or uh, all hands on deck, or Timothy, you, you need to listen to what I'm about to say. Now understand the context of this, is he's just told him in the previous chapter, this young, intimidated pastor, he says, I want to make sure that you teach with compassion, with kindness, 
that you deal with difficult people in a generous way, that you have a sense of enduring patience toward those who might be opponents. Right? So as a pastor, especially a young one, you're going to be soaking all of that in, especially when it comes from Yoda, the Apostle Paul. Right? So, like, yeah, that's right. Don't want to do that. Don't want to do that. So I want to be generous and kind and gracious in my teaching. But in verse 1, Paul says, but understand. Yes, Timothy, I want you to be those things, but understand what you're up against. He says, in the last days, there will become times of difficulty. Times of difficulty. Now we look at that and go, oh, the last days, which is uh, the seven years of tribulation or just before that. Uh, understand, the church has been in the last days for 2,000 years. Now, we might be in the latter of the latter last days, or however you want to say it, but um, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. The early church wrote about it being the last days. The last days are, man, there's only one more thing coming after this, and it's when Jesus opens up a can of whoop wrath. That's what's coming next, right? But up to that, we're living in these last days, and we have challenges in the midst of those last days. And here it says there'll be times of difficulty. There will be seasons of heartache. There will be seasons of hardship. There will be seasons of hard lessons. But here's the thing. I want you to remember redemption about that. That text right there. It's seasons. Right? What we can have a tendency to do with this text is say, in the last days, difficult times will come, and just wash our hands. It's just going to be difficult. We, We don't contribute to make it different. We don't try to see it spun around. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And then, oh, rapture, please. Right? But that's not what Paul's communicating. He's not saying it just gets worse and worse and worse and you can't see recovery from that. What he's saying is, you know what, in your environment, Timothy, there's going to be different seasons, as with all churches and all times, where it gets pretty rough. There's going to be seasons where people lose their moorings. There's going to be seasons where they lose the right values. There's going to be seasons where you feel like the church is losing and on the ropes and it's getting its butt kicked and the world's winning or the enemy's winning or the false teachers are winning. But be aware, he's giving them a warning that the seasons are going to come. But you ready, church? The seasons will also go. But they go only in the context when the church chooses to be faithful. When the Christian says, you know what? I'm not going with the flood. I'm going to paddle up the stream. Right? That can turn it around. It's no different than living here in the Northwest, right? We have different seasons. But we know the next one's coming. Right? So it's like fall. Oh, we love the leaves. Well, they're pretty much gone now. Right? So now we're in the next season, which is... Right? That, that, that's a trademark, by the way. Um, I mean, well, you know, we got Thanksgiving, we got Christmas, it keeps us a little bit motivated, but the man, you hit January 1st, and it's just like, blah, blah. You get to March, and you're like, knife, pistol, or noose? How do I, I just want it to end, you know? Uh, but then, summer's coming, right? The summers we all live for, get through spring, oh, you start to see things sprout, you're like, oh, there's life, there's life, and then summer comes, like, woo, summer! And then fall, right? <laughs> right. So it's, it's seasonal. And life in the church is always going to be seasonal. Life in the world is always going to be seasonal. So he says, man, watch out, wake up, be aware, be resistant, be reforming, and be redeploying always, because it's going to be seasonal. I think the other thing we have to realize is when a church takes Jesus seriously and takes the Bible seriously and takes kingdom expansion seriously and takes worship seriously, again, uh, you're kicking in the front door of the enemy you're going to have some rough seasons. 
because he's a gunslinger, man. He comes in and he wants to go all over the church. He can't stand effective churches. He loves mediocre churches. He loves lukewarm churches. He loves churches where pretty much everybody is just riding pine, sitting on the bench and watching the game, but they're not getting in there to put points on the board. He loves that. But, but churches that say, no, we're taking all of this seriously. We want to be about truth, mission, worship. He says, whoa, let's settle that stuff down because if they realize the living and true God is genuinely active in their life, they might uncork. They might take all of this so seriously, they begin to change their world. And so he always wants to subdue things. So Paul says, but understand this, young Timothy, that in the last days there will come time, become times of difficulty. He says, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. Rather, they'll be treacherous and reckless and swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, right now, I know we can all look at that list and right now we probably can all say yep right I mean it's not hard to look at the list to read the list against our culture and just walk through it you're like people will be lovers of themselves Kardashians lovers of money reality TV proud the Donald arrogant the Donald abusive breaking bad I mean like you know like right I mean you can just start doing it mentally you know I mean at some point you could even probably throw Bugs Bunny under the bus in this thing you know what I mean like like we could read it that way but here's the thing I want us to grasp this uncomfortable truth we may not like Paul doesn't write this list to describe what's out there he writes a letter to a pastor pastoring a church that says Timothy in later times you'll have seasons where your church is this Realize church, realize pastors, realize Christians that it is not hard to have this list be true in a church context. Because that's, that's what Timothy is facing. Uh, again, we can look at the list, like these, the, this whole thing, and we go, oh, well, lovers of themselves. And so we try to build a wall, get this big block. So we cordon off lovers of self, so they're out there, and lovers of money, they're out there, and proud, they're out there, and arrogant, they're out there, and abusive, they're out there, disobedient to their parents, and they're out there. And we fail to realize we're just walling it all in here. Right? There is a very real danger for us as believers that are so enmeshed in our world then instead of being influencers to our world, we become absorbers of our world. And we just little by little begin to absorb little different traits and features and biases and vices, and, and then we bring it in here. We bring it together, and we start to affirm each other's little biases and vices in, in, in this list, and then pretty soon it just begins to mature and grow and mushroom. It's not hard. It's not hard for us as believers, and, and I'm chief in this. I'm, I'm not saying you, I'm saying us, right? So, saying us. It's not hard for us as we live in a real world to start absorbing some of the identity of the world. We start looking around saying, uh, well, the solution is in this earthly program, or the solution's in this earthly program the solution is monetary the solution is political uh, the solution is moral right it, it's not hard to do that it's not hard to become more passionate about 
those solutions than to be passionate about the solution that God is the game changer. It's not hard to start saying, you know what, this book is just, it's so archaic. It's, I mean, it's got good advice, but if I go to a secular counselor that has a PhD, I'm going to get a lot more. Now, I'm not trying to take away from that field or those people. What I'm talking about is our attitudes to things where we get more excited, more worked up, more desperate for the solutions and cares and hungers and priorities and basically the idols of this world than we do on believing God's really sovereign, in control, wants us to go to Him, worship matters, mission matters, Bible matters, God has solutions, Spirit is the empowerer, and, and, and choosing God's solutions. It's just not hard to do. It's never been hard for the church throughout history to start saying it's the cross. It's never been hard. You know what the church first did? It said, it's the cross and the sword, Right? Remember that? Remember, you look, go back to church history, you have the, the church is swelling and spreading and evangelism's happening, and yeah, lots of people are dying in the name of Christ, but it's cross, it's cross, it's cross. And then eventually what happens is you have the Roman Catholic Church say, well, the cross and, and the sword. In fact, we're going to just start putting crosses on our shields and call it a, a match. And when you had the cross and the sword, what did you lose? Eventually, you lost the cross. Right? Anytime we say it's Jesus plus some idol identity, solution, or program in this world, and we think that Jesus can't get it done without that, guilty. Little by little, we pull it in. And it doesn't matter which side of the spectrum. It doesn't matter which identity. Go back to our Satan sermons series, which tried to say that three times fast. Um, and, and we learned that Satan loves extremes. He doesn't care which extremes. Right? Just extremes. So, when you go to extremes, you have these problems because, again, it begins to dilute the purity, the potency, the power of the church. What makes us unique and what makes us distinctive, right? I mean, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the, the fundamental difference in, in all of that, right? In all of it. See, understand, when Jesus set up the church, he set us up to be very different than the world around us. Right? This is what Paul's warning. He's like, if this list becomes you, you're not any different. When the world around us looks at us as Christians and they say, you guys are hypocrites, they're not saying, you know what, you guys are so moral and your values are so high, you're so different than me, you hypocrites. What are they saying? Well, you say one thing, but you do another. You claim high values, but you're no different than me. Except that you claim high values, which makes you worse than me. To which I'm like, nah, it doesn't work. But anyway, it's the problem. We're not being different. We're not acting different. We're not thinking different. We're absorbing. We're absorbing. That's why the church is called the holy church. We're called holy people. We're meant to be uncommon. We're meant to be set apart. But when we become sponge-like, we're absorbing more than we're influencing. And then that whole list we read becomes a rap sheet. It's not just a list of bad behaviors and morals. It's a rap sheet if we're not cautious. Am I saying that this is redemption? I'm not saying this is redemption. What I'm saying is every church should be reminded of the fact that deterioration is easy if we're not vigilant and if we're not focused. And so Paul, again, writes of these things. And there's this whole list of things, but you know what? If you really boiled it down, there are three core vices in the list. And those three core vices will then drive these 15 behaviors, basically. So it's kind of like root fruit, right? Right? Three root ideas, 15 fruit ideas. 
And the three roots are familiar, familiar, we know them, we understand them. It is being lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure. As soon as we as believers, again, it's a list to a church, we as believers, as soon as we fall victim to narcissism, or materialism, or hedonism, figurism, as soon as we fall to the isms where we say, you know what, I want to be, to have, and to feel, we're beginning to lose our way. Right? That, that'll take us off the, the beaten path. Now again, it's easy to say, hey, that's the stuff that's out there, but no, it's, it's really the in here. I'm looking at this list this week. Here's my transparency. I try to do this as much as possible. Here's my problem. I went through the whole list, the three core vices, the 15 behaviors, and I'm like, I've done all of these recently, right? Like all of these at some point, subtle or less than subtle, uh, they've all been there at some juncture or point. That's why I'm saying this list is not like, oh, that's really bad people. Because you can take any one of the words in the list and you can take it to the absolute extreme worst case scenario. Lovers of money, that's right, those greedy people that won't help the needy. But you can be all the way just, just on, on the front end of that vice too where you're just a little bit a lover of money. Right? You're not as bad as all of them, right? But we're still here. And I'm looking at going, man, I, that's, a, that's a challenge for me, and that one's a challenge for me, and that one's a challenge for me. This whole list is a challenge for me. So break down those three cores. First, the love of self. The love of self. See, the chief end of man, according to the Shorter Catechism, is basically outward and upward. Right? That what my calling is as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus, is I pour into others and I give everything to God. That is what I'm called to do. Right? The greatest is the least. The first is the last. Do everything to the glory of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know the message. It's not to be about self. The chief end of man is outward and upward, but the chief sin of man is inward and downward. Where it's about me, my wants, my feelings, my desires, my hungers. It's me. And think about where it comes out. Think about places like marriage. Uh, Ellen and I do a lot of marriage counseling and things like that, and, and it's interesting how often when a marriage is going off the rails, one of the first things you hear is, well, they're not meeting my needs. Um, you know, I, I just don't feel X toward them. Even though on the wedding day, it was, I promise to give love, honor, cherish, better, worse, richer, poor, sickness, and health, till death was, I'm pouring into them. But after 5, 10, 15, 20 years, no, I'm not receiving from them. Um, lovers of self. Maybe it's at work. You hear these young college students, they go, you know what? I don't, want, I don't know what I want to do, but whatever job I get, I want to be a job I love. Good luck. Um, you know, like, like the pinnacle of work is that you like your job. You know, like, but they want it to be about them more than I want to work hard or be dedicated or make a difference whether I like it or not. It's, well, I want to be happy. Even as a pastor in ministry and working with uh, kind of volunteers or laity or whatever, it's amazing how often we hear, oh, that's not my thing. It's not my, well, maybe it's their thing or the church's thing or we just need you for this thing. And that's not my thing. Now, I'm not saying if you're called to something else, that's great, but sometimes people are called to this ministry, Right? Don't do anything because it's not their thing. They have other things they want to do that are their thing, right? That's the challenge of lovers of self. 
And part of what's really hard about that, I'll speak even just briefly as a pastor in the church environment, um, what happens, this is where, how it escalates within a church, where people start going, it's kind of more about me. Do, do I like that style? Do I like that ministry vibe? Do I like that flavor? Do I like that video? Did I like that whatever, that branding? You pick it. Lesser things, not like do I, do I believe that they're preaching truth or do I believe that's accurate worship? I mean, just more lower level consumer-based things. There'll be people in churches for five, ten years and they finally get to a point where they're like, you know what, this just isn't, just isn't doing it for me anymore. And so they go do something else. They don't say, God, do I still have something to do here? Or, Jesus, it's about you, it's not about me. They just decide, you know what, nah, it's just not doing me anything anymore, so I'm going to go find something that suits me. Right? Now I get the average person doing that, but I've had that happen even with people that I work with in leadership. Right? Where like they're invested, they're elders or deacons or whatever it is, and then they'll come to me one day like, ah, oh, we're going to leave the church. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You're one of our leaders. Why are you leaving? Well, there's these slurpy machines. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Really? Another church has slurpy machines in their children's ministry, and you're going to leave for slurpy machines? Man, I hope you choke on that slurpy and get brain freeze. Right? So, <laughs> like, I'm in this list. All right. So, um, but you get that. So, so then what happens is pastors go, oh man, they like sleeping machines. Right? Oh, they like those amenities and those amenities. So what we start doing, we start chasing to make everybody happy with the amenities too. We feel the pressure to pour into the self-interest. If we don't appease the self-interest, they'll leave us. So we have to appease the self-interest. And when we do that, what happens? More self-interest grows. So churches can spin this up relatively quickly or easily if we're not aware Right? That's where we have to be sober in these things. Right? Sober. We need to ask the question as Christians, what is it that Jesus is pleased with? What is it that Jesus wants? What is it that Jesus seeks? It's not what I want, what I'm pleased with, what I like. That's self-love. It's what does Jesus love? Now in that, what you find is the closer you, you close into Jesus, the more what Jesus loves you begin to love too. Uh, the more you realize it's not about you, but it's about others and it's about Him, it's outward and upward, the more you are deeply satisfied in the outward and upward. If it's about you, you know what you find? You're never satisfied. Never satisfied. Always chasing, always looking, always wanting more, always feeling incomplete, right? That is the danger of self-love. The second problem is lovers of money. And this one couples to the first, right? If you're a lover of self, well, how do you subsidize your love of self? Money. How can you really love yourself unless you have money for yourself to feed yourself and enjoy everything that you want to enjoy for you? And in the church, especially in American culture, I see this in my own life, it's very easy to become a lover of money. How do you know you are? Well, you focus on it. You think about it quite a bit. You hoard it. You struggle to be generous with it. When... Uh, somebody like me gets up at church and says, hey, let's talk about money. You're like, oh, they're just going to want my money. They're just going to want my money. If that's your reaction, you might be a lover of money. Listen, I don't want your money. We as a church, we don't want your money. Jesus wants your worship. Jesus wants your giving. Now, I'll tell you this. I'm very thankful when you give. I am profoundly thankful to all of you who give to Redemption Church. I say thank you right now. It's not because I'm wanting it. I'm thankful for it. But Jesus, he wants you. And he wants you to want him more than you want money. 
right? So lovers of money do this. Lovers of God do this. Same with their attitudes in relationship to this. You know you love money if you stress about it or you neglect your family or spouse for it or believe that will solve your problems if you have it, that you think you'll be more secure with it, or that you can secure your happiness through it. Right? And you go, no, no, I, I know those are, that's not the answer. But it's not about what you know is the answer. It's about what you lay in bed at night thinking about. What causes you to lose sleep. What gets you excited. Right? I, mean, I even think about it like with Christmas coming up. You know, it's like we're going to start to map out the lists. Oh, if I just had this, woohoo, right? G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip, baby, bam, right? Like, so what, we're going to have this whole list. And as Christians, we're all going to say, Jesus is the reason for the season, <laughs> right? That's what we're all going to do. We're going to tell our kids, yeah, don't look at the 200 presents under the tree. Jesus is the reason for the season, all right? But, you know, we're all going to go after it. And, and man, have 200 presents, I'm cool with that. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. There is no crime or harm or having money as long as money doesn't have you. Right? Lovers of money versus lovers of God. And then third, says lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It doesn't mean that we're not allowed to have pleasure in this life and enjoy this world and have fun with things. It doesn't mean that, but it means uh, if we love fun more than kingdom, more than gospel, more than God, more than scripture, more than church, more than our mission and calling and purpose on this rock, then, then we, we might have some misguided pleasures, right? We might have some misguided priorities where we look at life going, how can I move to the next fun thing more than how can I make the next investment? How can I absorb everything this world has to offer more than influence it before I leave this world, right? I remember even as a younger man, just again, being real transparent, the notion of heaven was kind of a downer. The notion of eternity was a downer, like this world is way cooler than heaven. That's just babies and diapers and clouds and harps. I don't want that. Like this world's cool, we got snowboarding. You know what I mean? Like, 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 and so I wanted all of the pleasure investment here instead of saying I want to store it for the pleasure investment there. So when we are lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, what we then do is we invite all kinds of behaviors from that, right? So those three benchmarks then produce certain ways of seeing the world, certain dispositions, certain ways of reacting to people uh, that maybe rub us wrong because what we are doing is we're losing our field of focus. Instead of saying, I look to God to define everything I do on this planet, we start to look at this planet to define everything I do in life and God pretty soon is just orbiting. Instead of God is center and everything orbits God, it's I'm center, this world dictates me, and God orbits. He's out here. He's on Sunday. He's in my daily bread. He's my little Jesus in my front pocket. He goes with me where I go. I love him very much when I think of him. But really, we think about everything else more. And when we do, things get wobbly. We start to slip into a spirit of acting proud. Here's our list, these 15 traits that flow out of these three broken values. Pride. We get some swagger. We're know-it-alls. We're driving down the road. Everybody that's going fast is an idiot. Everybody that's going slow is an idiot. Right? We're the only sensible, sane one on the road. Right there, my brother. 
right? Right. Everybody's an idiot. Or arrogant. Arrogance is interesting. It's different than pride. Pride's got swag. Arrogance, you might look humble on the outside, but inside, you just think they're all idiots. It's like he's the nicest guy, and the whole time in the office, he's like, you're an idiot. I want to punch you in the face. Instead, they say, I'll get you some coffee if you want. Right? So like, but inside, they seethe. Right? It's like Walter White in Breaking Bad in the early episodes. Right? Mr. Nice Guy, but inside, oh, broken, broken. Right? That's arrogant. Abusive. Maybe you become abusive toward your kids, toward your spouse, toward your friends, toward your coworkers. I don't mean hit them, slap them. I just mean simple things like you're bitey, you get short, you're always frustrated, you're always on edge. Always they're like, oh, why did you do that? Where everybody feels they're on eggshells with you, that can be abusive. Disobedient to parents, right? Actively or passively, right? For teenagers, it's just like, you know what, they don't know what they're doing and you don't obey them and you don't care and you don't care about their feelings. That's the fruit of this. For us as adult kids with adult parents, sometimes it can just be passive. We just don't make the investment. We don't care. We don't check. Right? Those are the fruits of those who become self-centered. Ungrateful. That's not hard. We live in an entitled generation. You know? I look at me right now. I hate, I hate with a passion my iPhone 4 right now. All you Microsoft people should say amen. All right, so... Stupid update, won't do anything, my messages won't come, my messages won't go, I'm so sick and tired of the thing, I just want to throw it in the water and get myself a Microsoft product so I can be happy. Why? Because I'm not grateful that I have technology at my fingertips. It's like a first world problem, man. Right? Ungrateful. You can be ungrateful in all kinds of things. My life circumstance, how things played out, that this wasn't my vision from my world, whatever else. Ungrateful. Next, unholy. I'm just no different than anybody around me heartless, where I'm just disinterested or fickle, disloyal. Maybe even some of us were entertained by cruelty. I, I, I know some friends, they just think like, like the videos online where it shows somebody getting wounded or killed or just awesome. Like, you're twisted, man. I love you. You even claim Jesus, but you're twisted. It's the fruit of heartless. Unappeasable, they hold grudges. If we hold grudges... If we refuse to make things right with somebody that we know there's wrongness with, it just we're being unappeasable. Slanderous. Right? Churches, man, that we can struggle with slander. Christians can struggle with slander. Um, Lemon and Duval. Oh, man. Um, like, like, honestly, this week, I even had one this week where somebody came to me and, and they said, yeah, I was talking to so-and-so, and they said to watch out for you and your church because you teach that if you don't drink beer, you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I'm like, well, I said if you drink bad beer, you're not... Um, <laughs> no. I'm like, wow, if you don't drink beer, you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think somebody needs to baptize you with something, maybe a bat. All right, so, um, I'm in this list. All right, so, right, slanderous, without self-control, poor decision-making in this world, people not thinking through the consequences of their actions. Families falling apart because of a lack of self-control. Brutal, dog-eat-dog, insensitive, indifferent to the hurts, feelings, or needs of others. Where we see somebody hurting and we're just like, oh man, that's a bummer. I'm going to go have a Slurpee. You know, like, we may not say it that way, but sometimes there, there can be people really hurting in our life and it's just kind of a, I pray for you. Now maybe there's not much you can do, but if the heart is kind of like, oh, that's a bummer, and then you just kind of forget about it, maybe, maybe that's part of the challenge. 
right? Brutal. Not loving good. Maybe even seeing good as bad or good as square or good as dull or good as archaic or relative. Treacherous. means backstabbing. I deal with a lot of people in counseling who feel stabbed in the back by a friend or relative. That's not that uncommon even in the church. Reckless, right? Reckless means thoughtless about others' feelings. Swollen with conceit. Again, that goes back to some of the issues on pride where we think we're better or smarter or we're above others mentally, physically, emotionally, technically, tactically, whatever. See, I, I, I honestly, I look at this list and I go... Every one of these, at different points in time, I will struggle with, right? So I know I'm susceptible. This is not a list for out there. This is a list for in here. This is not a list for like, ah, that'll never happen. It's a list where I go, this happens regularly. Maybe in little ways, but just a little way can grow into a medium way, which can grow to a big way, which is why we want to make sure that we nip it when we see it. Why we repent of it, because there can be a tipping point. In a church, there can be a tipping point we're pretty soon it just starts to escalate and, and the environment of the church becomes pocked and marked with the landscape of toxic counterchrist values. And Paul says, man, when that happens, then you start to have teachers who do this. It says, for among them are those who creep into households, verse 6, and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Here you have the anti-evangelism group. So it's people in the church that have taken on these values. They've reached the tipping point. A lot of people in the church kind of have the same values. They love pleasure and money more than God. They love self more than God. And they start to listen to the people in the church that love themselves and love their money and love their pleasure more than God. And those leaders begin to rally people to themselves. I remember when I was in high school, we had a ministry called Breakaway. And in that ministry, there were some guys that had been leaders in that ministry who then decided, you know what, I do love myself more, and I love money more, and I love pleasure more, and I'm doing all of this. And they started a group called Broke Away. And their whole mission was to suck kids out of breakaway into broke away. Right? So how can we get that guy high? How can we get that guy drunk? How can we get that guy with this girl? How can we just wipe out their faith? I thought it was funny. It was hilarious. Right? And you go, that can never happen in a church. I can it does. In little ways and big ways, it happens. And so Paul warns and says, there's going to be, be people that seek to do those things. In fact, Moses faced this with a couple of yahoos back in the Old Testament. Right? And this is what Paul uses as the example. There was these guys who were actually magicians in Pharaoh's court. This isn't actually in the Old Testament. It's a part of Jewish tradition that's been handed down. So um, these guys were part of Pharaoh's court, pretend to convert to Judaism, and then once there, according to Jewish tradition, they were the ones that encouraged Aaron to make this big golden calf that everybody could worship while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments. So the whole mission was to lead people astray. But the whole time they're doing it, they're thinking they're right, right? That's the danger in the church, which is why we want to be vigilant again to make sure we protect the gate because the reality of these people, that they oppose the truth, they're corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. That's what they really are. They claim Jesus, they claim the Bible, they claim truth, they claim mission, they claim worship, but that is not their priority. Their priority is themselves, their ego, their title, their notoriety. They care about their money. They want money for them. Whether you have money for you is immaterial. They care about their pleasure, so they have great travel budgets and they have nice rental cars. And I've seen this in church leadership. 
I'm not talking about the outside world. I've seen church leadership firsthand that is this group right here takes advantage of people. Not because they care about the gospel and the kingdom and Christ and the church. They just care about themselves and their notoriety and their titles. All of it. And sometimes we see that and we go, man, these people keep taking advantage of others for their position, for their power, for their profits. This is so unfair. Paul says, but don't forget, verse 9, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all as it was with those two men. Understand, when you see injustice, when you see unfairness, when you see exploitation, remember, it's temporary. It's temporary. We can sit around and go, why? Why why do guys in religion mess with churches? Why do they snap the back of the local church for their own purpose? And you go, you know what? I don't know why, but what I do know is they don't get away with it for long. I know that. So I don't have to sweat it. I just need to worry about being blessable. About not falling victim to the values and the vices of this list. But to focus on being different. Church, we need to be different. We need to be different. See, in this list, the problem is that the people were becoming lovers of themselves and lovers of money and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the problem. You want to know what the solution to the problem is? Just invert it. The solution is to be lovers of God rather than lovers of self, money, and pleasure. Novel, I know, brilliant. But that's the solution right there. It's so simple. It's seeing ourselves as an instrument of worship, seeing our money as an opportunity for generosity, seeing our God as a repository for pleasure. See, our problem, I find my problem, is I'm not too big a pleasure seeker. I'm not too great a self seeker. I'm not too great a money seeker. My problem is I'm too little of those things. Too little of those things. In other words, I go, oh, well, this world can give me pleasure, and this world can give me money, and this world can fulfill me myself, and I shoot too low. What I should do instead of say, oh, wait, God can fill me more than this world can fill me. And the treasures laid up are far greater than the treasures I amass here. Right? And the pleasure that I want from this life is incomplete in comparison to the pleasure I can receive from God here and there. See, that's the challenge. I look at David. He got this, man. He so got this. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you, O God? I desire you more than anything on earth. If we just made that our prayer every day, God, help me to be a person that desires you more than anything else on earth. And we prayed that multiple times a day. The shocking thing is God might answer that. You know what we don't do? We don't pray that. We actually pray for more here, more now, more stuff. And I'm not against that, but what I'm saying is we should say, hey, can I have some of this here and now? But that's not going to be even nearly satisfying in comparison to you. I want more of you. David said in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Church, we've got to believe that the right hand of God are, in fact, pleasures forevermore. Well, we just don't. No, there's more pleasures in the Costco aisles. There's more pleasures in the great wandering of Egypt called Ikea. Right? No, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
The other thing we have to realize, the other problem these people had is that they had an appearance of godliness, but they were denying its power, right? And understand the problem of godliness or religion without power, that's either liberal or legalistic. It doesn't matter. It's anybody that says, you know what, we've got to add to the Bible, we've got to abdicate the Bible, we've got to abbreviate the Bible, we've got to, you know, just got to change it all around. It's not enough. That's religion. That's godliness without power. What is the solution? It's to have the display of godliness because of the presence of power. Just invert the text. Just see the text different. See, a lot of people in churches live by their flesh, right? They live by moralism or legalism or spiritualism or consumerism. They live by those things, right? Novelty or bigotry even sometimes happens in the church. Religious identity. You have a code without Christ. You have a system but without the Spirit. Right? We, we, that's not what we're looking for. That's not what we want, right? We want something different. Be, because those things are powerless. They're powerless. Right? But the display of godliness through the presence of power, that is the game. And when we're talking about the power here, it's not just some kind of ethereal floating idea. It's not the force. It's a person, the Holy Spirit, who empowers the church, right? Soul-transforming, vice-crushing, life-shaping, attitude-adjusting, joy-bursting, hope-driving, gospel-sharing, Jesus-following, God-worship, spirit-empowering power. That is what he offers. That is what he gives. That is what we seek. Remember 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, self-control. He's giving you the Holy Spirit to accomplish this task. He does this so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Christianity is not works-based. It's God works in you-based. That's different. That's different. And when we as the church embrace this as our motto, when he is first, when we are God-centered over self-centered, here's what it means. We can be investors into the world to change it for the better. I take our passage and invert it one last time. When God is first, when he is big and we are small, God's people can be lovers of others, lovers of generosity, praising, humble, compassionate, attentive to their parents, thankful and holy, heartfelt and content, gracious and disciplined, tender, celebrating the good. We can be benevolent and thoughtful and bursting with acknowledgement, lovers of God as our greatest pleasure. We can have the display of godliness because of his power. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that we would not lose heart, but we would realize because of your power, because of your grace, because of your cross, because of your gospel, this is what we can be. As we seek you and need you, want you and worship you. I pray that we will be aware and on guard to the things that can corrode, but we would equally be in pursuit and have a hunger for the things that bring healing not only to our own lives, but healing to a world that needs healing through you. We love you. We need you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.